Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Yes, welcome to another installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, today, as always, we have a really intriguing, fascinating show lined up for you. Uh, midway in our show, we will be joined by the wonderful, the astounding Tig Fong. Tig is, um, in his own right, a, on film in any case, a uh, queer superhero. And what I mean by that is he is an action guy. He is a stunt guy. He is the guy that produces all the wow visual effects of bodies flying through space, through fire, through you name it. I'm sure he has done it. Um, He is working on current projects, The Lost Symbol, What We Do in the Shadows on FX, and Amazon's The Boys. He has also been involved in uh, stunt work on uh, DC's Titans, NBC's Taken, uh, the uh, movie It and Poltergeist and performing stunts on X-Men, Dark Phoenix, and Star Trek Discovery and the show Arrow. So um, he's got a lot of experience in this area. And um, also got to find out about his or their pronouns. Um, Tig actually identifies as Mahu, which is third gender, and um, Tig is a, a huge advocate for uh, BIPOC and LGBTQ people. He is actually the very, or they are actually the very first um, queer person of color working as a stunt coordinator in Canada. Um, there are, he's the first and there are no others at this point. Part of their drive is to expand the diversity in the field and we're going to talk to them about all of that. Um, exciting work, and a really outstanding individual, and they'll be joining us midway in the show. Um, actually, they may be on earlier, waiting in the wings here. Um, I'm looking at the board. Um, so we're excited to talk to them. Um, first, I'm going to bring on Brody Levesque, and Brody's got a couple of breaking stories that we want to talk about, one about the Texas legislature and one about the uh, situation in uh, Los Angeles where an L.A. spa reportedly had a trans person who was flashing genitalia at other people in the spa. Um, As it turns out, that whole thing likely was staged. It was not real, um, and uh, people are losing their minds over it. So uh, we'll bring on Brody and find out what that's all about. Hey, Brody, how are you doing? Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, and all of the good things to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing to our podcast. We sincerely appreciate that ever so much. As Rob said, I have a couple things to to discuss with him and let you guys know about in Texas. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott has recalled the Texas State Legislature back into a special session for 30 days with the purpose of seeking passage of items that were left over from the regular session 
that the governor has referred to as unfinished business. The governor announced the items yesterday on his website and on Twitter. I'm quoting the governor. The 87th legislative session was a monumental success for the people of Texas, but we have unfinished business to ensure that Texas remains the most exceptional state in America. Well, yeah, I would guess so when you consider that one of his priorities out of the 11 measures that he's bringing back is a bill that is aimed directly at preventing trans youth athletes from competing on teams matching their gender identity. I spoke with Shannon Minter, who's uh, been on the show. He's uh, a good friend of our show here, a good guy. Shannon is the legal director for the National Center for Lesbian Rights. They are an LGBTQ legal advocacy group, and this is what Shannon told me. Governor Abbott's attempt to resuscitate the transgender sports ban is shameful. Millions of Texans lost power for days this past winter. Texas needs the legislature to focus on real problems, not scapegoat a vulnerable group of school children who pose no threat to anyone. The vast majority of Texans see this for what it is, a heartless political ploy to divert attention from a serious failure of leadership. Um, one of the things that was pointed out uh, in Texas media yesterday is there has been a long-standing campaign by the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, also a Republican, who is rabid when it comes down to transgender and LGBTQ rights. He's just absolutely an extremist. Uh, so it was little or no surprise that this piece of legislation made it back into the session. Now, another young man that we've had on the show, great guy, uh, who absolutely has been on the forefront of fighting against this nonsense, testified in front of the Texas State Legislature as a young activist. He's a freshman uh, at university in Houston, Texas. His name is Landon Ritchie. Uh, I called Landon, and this is what Landon said to me. What was made abundantly clear by Abbott's agenda is that discriminating against transgender youth and excluding them from the same opportunities as their peers is a higher priority than addressing the real problems affecting all Texans. Instead of taxpayer dollars going towards weatherizing our power grid, helping communities and businesses recover from COVID pandemic, or preparing coastal cities for surviving a possibly very destructive hurricane season, no, they will be spent on harming and perpetrating further stigma against already vulnerable children. However, just like we defeated Senate Bill 29 in the regular session, we will defeat this revived version as well. Hate has no place in Texas, but trans kids do. So that's from the state of Texas, Rob. And, and I, I just want to point out uh, for anybody listening who has not heard us talk about it, has not heard our shows about this issue itself in general, uh, we've had Bryn Tannenhall on who has done an excellent job um, with the uh, analysis of teen sports um, with transgender kids who are participating. There are some really excellent uh, pieces out there that uh, the USAA, or US, uh, yes, USAA, um, sorry, US News uh, recently did um, a report on this showing that this is a non-issue. This is not something that 
is a real thing. There are not um, essentially cisgender boys participating on cisgender girl teams. Um, this is the kids who are participating fit right into their gender identity, um, and, and there is no issue. Plus, there are not a lot of them. So this is targeting a very vulnerable, small group of kids who are highly susceptible to suicide. And um, it's unconscionable that it is even going forward. So just a, a few words on that. And speaking of um, fabrications that are meant to uh, demonize the trans community, um, there's something going on in L.A. with an L.A. Um, uh, studio sports club down there. Um, Brody, you want to tell us about that one? Well, it's, um, it's more of an upscale posh personal care spa. I don't know. I, I mean, as, as I tell you and I tell, you know, the young people I mentor, you know, my old fat ass would not be improved by any of that anyway. So it's like, who cares? But we have an upscale spa in Los Angeles at the edge of Koreatown, just before you get to MacArthur Park. It's called the Wee Spa. It is very queer friendly, been LGBTQ friendly for a long time. Um, got a great staff down there and good people. So a couple of weeks ago, a person on Instagram, a woman who identified herself as Cuba Angel, posted a video on Instagram, and it's uh, since been also on YouTube, in which she's angrily confronting a staff member at the spa and accusing them of allowing a disrobed transgender person into the women's section of the business. Specifically, and I'm not going to use the transphobic term she did, but, you know, it boils down to the old guy in the dress, you know, scaring the children type of scenario, and she really went off the rail on it. Well, that started a series of social media posts on Instagram, on TikTok, and also on Facebook, and so the anti-forces of um, people who, quite frankly, don't like our community at all, decided they were going to have a protest and protest the spa. Well, LGBT advocacy groups caught wind of that. So last weekend, the two sides faced off literally, and it got violent. There were people who were beaten. There was a couple of stabbings that occurred. Uh, there were some other assaults. There was a lot of... Um, violent anger out there. The Los Angeles Police Department was forced uh, to respond in force uh, with its officers from the Rampart Division of the LAPD. Now, I, I've got to say that the Los Angeles Police Department did not dispatch um, its emergency response teams, uh, some known, of course, by the vernacular SWAT. These were regular patrol officers, from the Rampart Division that were called in uh, to disperse and to basically walk in. They declared it an unlawful assembly, and they cleared it out. Uh, the Los Angeles Police Department has also since then told the Los Angeles Blade that they are working on investigating the five or six crimes that occurred, including the stabbings. Um, I will note without a sense of irony that the stabbings were friendly fire. Uh, apparently, they were on the anti-trans side of the fence, which also included some proud boys, some white supremacists, and a few others. Apparently, there was a couple of altercations over there. 
the people getting stabbed were not actually protesting to protect the spa or our community. So they were friendly fire if you want to go that way with it. So, so the well, people one, protesting yeah. stabbed each other, basically. I mean, the, yeah, the yeah, anti-trans yeah. people stabbed each other. Got it. But, but yeah, now yeah, no, no, Brody, yeah, we're understanding yeah. that the original situation that spurned all this protest and everything else was potentially staged, that it yes. wasn't real. That we, we're, sources are telling us that um, the Los Angeles Police Department's investigation is starting to narrow in on the fact that the initial predicate incident, which was the Instagram video, may have been in fact been One of our investigative journalists, uh, Robert Lansing, uh, has been looking into this uh, as well, and we've taken and kind of looked at what's going on uh, in the echo chamber that is right-wing extremism, uh, and by monitoring posts and backtracing things and doing some legwork and uh, other things in there, we're beginning to suspect predicated on what the LAPD and what a source of the spot was, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, that, yeah, this is a staged incident. In other words, there was no transgender person from the get-go. So the whole thing was a fabrication. This was manufactured outrage that turned into actual violence, not manufactured violence, but actual violence. Um, A source at the spot called the Los Angeles Blade, okay, and, and this is part of the other factors that work into this, okay? A source at the spa told the boy that there's no record of any of its usual transgender clients on its appointment guest list on the day in question. Treatment at that spa, even in non-COVID, is by appointment only, and most of its transgender clients are actually well-known to the staff. So that was the first thing that started to raise eyebrows, okay? So that was part of the factors that did that. Well, then the other part of it was uh, Robert Lansing, the investigative journalist, went back and started basically picking apart the metric data of this Cuban angel person's Instagram account and discovered that it's almost entirely exclusively Kristen Mean, okay, which immediately starts, why would she choose to go to a well-known high-end spa that has got a reputation for being queer-friendly? Okay. The other part of it is you never see at any point during the video a transgender person. The other part of it, no other witnesses have come forward to confirm her allegations. Okay. And then the final part of it is Lansing reported. This is also not the first time the spy has been targeted for catering to trans people. Okay. Nor has it not come under fire by, you know, proud boy types, white supremacist types, and a more you know, vitriolic-filled lance of the people that don't like the LGBTQI community. Why they picked this particular spa is something that we're not exactly certain of, and that happens to be what we're chasing down right now. We don't know. But we do know this. It is starting to look as if this entire thing was staged and it was manufactured, you know, as a predicate to cause trouble. Now, the publisher of the Los Angeles Blade, uh, during our editorial meeting this morning, Prime Masters pointed out to me that we've been down this road before with the, you know, the drag story hours, you know, where the drag queens go in and they have the, they read the stories to kids in full drag. Well, one of the very first times that occurred was in Huntington Beach, California, and it set off a national chain of protests. 
which was followed by a national grouping of drag queens who went out and started library story times. Uh, so this is not the first time that we've seen outrage propelled from other well, incidences of things get manufactured. Not, it, you know. it is also not the first time in the L.A. area where a fabricated trans um, trespassing story has been used. I mean, the original sure. um, story in Cal- <clears throat> California about trans kids in the bathrooms and a uh, trans um, uh, kid who um, allegedly had was spying on cisgender girls, et cetera, et cetera, all turned out to be a complete fabrication. And that also gen- came out of the L.A. area. So there, there is this precedent that fake trans stories um, come out of that area. Well, you know, and we've also seen this in other places, as Robert uh, wrote in his piece. In 2015, anti-transgender activists in Washington State deliberately encouraged men to enter women's facilities. Okay. One cisgender man had entered a swimming pool uh, changing area wearing only board shorts while claiming he had a right to be there. Now, he was later removed by uh, King County sheriff's deputies he was actually never charged in that case um but you know we have seen this kind of pattern before now we are also seeing flyers being circulated through twitter and some of the other right-wing sites uh talking about a new protest um at the spot and again this is being driven directly by you know, people that absolutely disagree with trans people. You know, the other night, uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg was on Stephen Colbert on The Late Show. And as Secretary Buttigieg pointed out, uh, and I'll reemphasize the Secretary's word, part of the problem here is they deny the very existence of trans people, period. Right. They, their, their whole thing is they say that there is no such thing. Um, and it's because they're just simply not accepting of any variant or inclusiveness uh, in terms of you know our community and the diversity of humanity, yeah, we're the the person that we're going to be speaking to uh, here shortly uh, would fall well within that category, being someone who doesn't identify in a specific way in what we consider a traditional societal gender role or construct, and this is also something that we've seen a lot of push on. But as Robert has pointed out in his reporting. And in the conversations we've had numerous times over the years here on Rated LGBT Radio, the biggest problem that we've discovered with this entire issue is a deliberate indifference and a deliberate hatred predicated on something these people don't understand or do not want to understand. And because of that, they hold that line. Some of it is religious indoctrination. Some of it is societal, and some of it, quite frankly, at the end of the day, is just not. Right. So, so with that, let let us transo- transition over to our guest, switch gears mm-hmm. here. Um, and I do want to welcome uh, Tig to the show. Tig, welcome. Hey, Rob. Uh, thank you very much. Pleasure to, pleasure to be here. Oh, it, uh, thrilled to have you on. Um, before we get into specifics, though, I, I do want to get into a couple of things. One is um, I understand you identify as Mahu. Um, can you, yes. for 
for many people who do not understand what that is, can you uh, enlighten us on that? Um, well, as actually what Brody was talking about, I mean, you know, there's uh, there certainly is a, a broad spectrum of uh, of of uh, human existence, really, and, and, and gender, gender roles and, and gender identities, in fact, historically, and there have always been through multiple cultures. Mahu is uh, a Polynesian third gender. Kli, uh, it's really males who uh, embody what they believe is a, both a female and a male energy. Historically, pre-colonization, uh, they were always held in, these people were held in esteem, actually. And they would have positions of such as being a uh, uh, shaman or, or chiefs even, or, you know, certainly caregivers. Um, but after colonization, unfortunately, uh, that practice was heavily um, uh, disliked by, uh, by, by Christian, uh, Christian uh, uh, missionaries. So they, they banned that. And uh, even though that it's come back a bit in Hawaii and, of course, the other Polynesian islands, uh, it's, it's now almost a, had become a derogatory term. I, I hope that people of Polynesian ancestry are able to reclaim that name and take pride mm-hmm. in it and, and understand that, that they uh, have a place in their society and that they should also decolonize their minds and not accept uh, Western definitions of the only being a binary gender. Let me, let me jump in is, here for a quick, Rob. This yeah, is a lot like, well, at home in Canada, when I was growing up, um, our native um, Aboriginals, we call them our First Nations. And in our First Nations, uh, we have two spirits, uh, which right. absolutely 100% is what he just defined. And so, um, for the First Nations, it, it was it was a matter of great honor and great respect, and it was it was a really big deal. The Aboriginals on the other side of the border in, in your country, in the United States, had the same thing. So, for the First Nations of the North American uh, continent, this is this is something that was just ages ages old and ancient. Uh, so, and I, anyway, I just want to throw that in there. At home in Canada, this is what we would call. So, anyway, I'll shut up. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. no I, yes, I, thank you, Brody. I think, that's, go ahead. That's Craig, actually yeah. what I use if people have trouble understanding it. I'll just say I think the nearest analog would be indigenous uh, two spirits, which is not every indigenous uh, person. It's, obviously, it's a it's a couple different groups, but nevertheless, yeah. Some people, a lot of people, have heard of two spirits at, at this point. And I, I think I think these definitions are super important because, uh, among other things, in a big picture sense, they really underscore that this is legacy, that this isn't some new invention that people just thought up of recently in terms of uh, gender and uh, sexual orientation identities. Um, Tig, what is the appropriate uh, pronoun usage for you? Thank you for asking. I. I have been living as male for so long that I'm completely comfortable with he and him. Um, but I also like and accept they and them. Okay. What, and which, which do you actually prefer? I, I prefer, I prefer gender neutral. They and them. Okay. Excellent. 
Excellent. I just wanted to, to that that was my one of my very first questions because um, I I think the third gender concept is uh, very important, and I think that the legacy of this binary that a lot of society has passed down as a given, um, you know, it, it's it's important to note that that uh, for for throughout history people question that, and that wasn't really the true human experience. Um, I want to switch gear with Absolutely. you, though, to the fascinating career that you have, have built for yourself. How did you, um, you know, where, how were you brought up that um, stunt work became your future? <laughs> um, I, I certainly wasn't um, brought up to it. My, my, my parents were very chagrined when uh, I didn't want to do what every immigrant parent uh, parents uh, want you to do, which is you know become a doctor or go into medicine or whatever. I wanted to go into film, and I I was inspired as a as a as a kid. I, I grew up uh, the only sort of uh, uh, API kid in my schools. I was the only ever, ever the one there for like multiple schools, like all the way through until maybe I reached university. I think maybe high school at some point. So I, I had no role models. Um, certainly there was almost nobody in sports or, but in film there was Jet Li and there was, there was Bruce Lee, of course. And, and I, I was fascinated by these strong Asian male, uh, characters. And, and that, that caused two things. One, it made me want to do martial arts and the other one, it made me want to do it in film. And, uh, through a very kind of a long meandering course, I, I managed to stumble my way into film uh, as a, a stunt performer specializing in martial arts. And in martial arts, in just the, the ranks of martial arts alone, uh, and we're going to get to the, the Hollywood and the, the stunt part uh, in a few minutes, but just in the martial arts discipline, what is that environment like for queer kids? I come out... Um, probably until maybe just a, less than a half dozen years ago uh, to anybody, really. Um, so, and I'm, I'm not in, you know, in any way affecting it, but I am straight passing, I guess, and cis passing. And so I didn't really have to deal with any of that, you know, as I was, you know, training and most of my life training, actually. Didn't come into play. But uh, do you have any observation of it now, looking back or or seeing the environment? Was you know was it something like like recently we had an NFL player come out as gay, and he really made a lot of headlines because he was the first player actively in the game who came out in that way. I mean, there there Michael Sam came out before joining. Um, and certainly they're ones that acknowledge it after they left it, but he was the first one that came out in the, in the space. Is that a similar bias in the general martial arts circle, or is there a greater acceptance if a, a queer kid came out as they were in competitions? Hmm. That's an interesting question. And I'm going to back up by saying that um, I, I have 
sort of experienced uh, marginalization and other issues in my life, uh, you know, be, uh, beyond, uh, you know, be identifying as queer and non-cis uh, since the, really yeah. the beginning. And that is, of course, uh, being API growing up in what was a very racist community. So most of the time I was really paying attention to if people were treating me different because of the color of my skin, which in day-to-day life they certainly did. And that was really the thing that I was focused on. I wasn't aware, mm-hmm. like as I was growing up, of any other queer martial artists that came out. They probably didn't. The community that I grew up in was rather backward, so not only were they racist, but they were, you know, pretty homophobic too. I couldn't imagine any kids coming out, and I, I wasn't dealing with that so much as I was dealing with racism. So that was really sort of what I was dealing with at the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, the reason I ask is because you are doing so much work right now to broaden the diversity of the field you're in, and it would seem that that, was, that is a source of great jumping-off point that – because um, honestly, I'm in. I am sort of stunned and in awe of what you do. It, it's. I'm one of these people that I go to a movie or I watch a television show, and I see these scenes, and it's like, oh wow, that's cool. <laughs> Don't ask me how they did it, because <laughs> I can't even dissect it. It's. Um, it's that amazing, um, and you are the person behind it, who's who puts that all together. Um, what is your approach on a project? How do you look at that on, you know, it says, you know, a bunch of cars fly together and blow up and people run and da, da, but you're the one that, that needs to dissect it and coordinate it. How, how do you go about it? Um, I mean, firstly, and, and, and foremost, uh, and, and these are questions that I often answer that I get interviewed about, for my, you know, just, just for stunts, approach, right. I approach action from the point of view of story first. So action is just nonverbal storytelling. And the fight scenes that I uh, design uh, are really just nonverbal conversations. So what is the story? What, is, what serves the story here? Uh, and if it's a fight scene, what are the characters saying to each other physically and and then how 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 do i tell that story with their movements that's the very first thing uh that i do is is looking for that through line looking to carry that story through via the action and then comes all the uh you know administrative stuff of 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 contacting the right people and, and then comes the design parts of either choreographing fights or choreographing uh, car action or, or what have you. And, um, and one of the things I found fascinating in, in stuff you've talked about in the past is how, you, I mean, it, it, you spoke of characters and how you designed situations based on what the character would do in that situation and confronted with the, the things that were coming at them and everything else. And I found it just fascinating that your role, you're, you're actually part of the scriptwriter, you're part of the director, you're part of that. I mean, it's like you are a microcosm of the entire film in just the action sequences that you do. Um, and it just, it, it just seems to take this 
huge multidimensional approach on your part and your talent um, to construct it that way. Um, I, I don't know if there was a good question in there, but if you had a comment on that. Well, oh, microcosm of the industry. That's, that's, a, that's a fascinating way to say it. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a multidiscipline, multidisciplinary position. And, and the more skills you have that you can apply to it, the better. I, I, do, I am a director. I am also a second unit director. Um, so I will interpret what's written in the script. I will then make suggestions as to what the action would be. I would then design it, and then very often I'd be the one to shoot it. So, so yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot of me in there, which is which is kind of cool. And when I see the finished product, it's really lovely because uh, I can see me in it. <laughs> kind of nice. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, one of the things we talked about up front was that you are the first and only queer person of color to break into stunt coordinating in Canada. Um, and before we get into that fact alone, which is astounding. What is the diversity picture in the Americas, in the United States, Hollywood as well? Is it equally as undiverse as Canada has been? It's hard for me to tell. I, I work worldwide as well as in Canada, and, and the shows that I work on here, are, are the, they're not Canadian shows. They're actually American shows that are, that are shot here. Uh, but I don't get to see what the diversity is within, say, the stunt community uh, in the U.S. would be, or let's say in L.A. It, itself. I, I mostly have experience with what happens here, and I can definitely tell you that um, there's very little diversity, very little representation. It's been that way for decades. And that's always been difficult for me to to live with. I very much wanted to, to do stunts. I very much wanted to do martial arts and stunts. And then getting into it is like a dream come true because imagine, you know, I am so fortunate to, to, to be doing what I've always dreamt of doing for a living. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful gift. But then on the other hand, to be a person of color, let's start with that. Mm-hmm. There's not much work for people of color in stunts, or there hadn't been. There's, there's increasingly much more now because there's more people of color being represented in film in general, in Hollywood. Uh, therefore, you're going to need just more stunt players, and certainly you'll need more stunt doubles of color. So there, there is, there is, there's, there's hope. It's improving. Uh, there's greater representation, certainly, than for, for, for people of color. Within the stunts here, and I'm only going to speak to uh, here in Canada, in terms of representation of LGBTQ people, um, almost zero. So unfortunately, you know, stunt culture is uh, um, sort of like the last bastion of, of uh, chauvinism, male toxicity sort of, uh, you know, uh, place you know, within film, because, because Hollywood, uh, you know, as much as there's always room for more improvement, you know, you see them trying to, to improve inclusivity. Uh, and now you see, you see lots of queer people in film and you see trans people in film now. In fact, there's a surprisingly high demand for trans people and roles for transgendered people now in film. 
just uh, just in the last couple of years I've noticed. Uh, but within stunts, again, um, it's been very, it's been there's, there's been almost zero representation. That's actually one of the reasons why, the, the primary reason why I came out professionally. It, it's it's really it, in in many ways kind of surprising. Um, that it is that way, it, and, and this may be my ignorance of stunts, but I realize that there are certain stunts where you have to have somebody who looks close to the the actor that they're doing the stunt for because, you know, you, you're going to see them briefly and that they need to have some semblance of resemblance. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of stunt work that you couldn't tell even the gender of, the person, I mean, it's, they're moving fast. They're, you know, it's like they're, they're all aflame. They're, you know, jumping out of a car, um, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what is, are the factors that are keeping people of color specifically, um, out of the ranks there? Do you think? Thank you for asking. Um, here's the thing. Uh, let's go back to the history of stunts. The very first stunt men, and they were men, in Hollywood were cowboys, but like actual cowboys. Because when they were making westerns and they needed people to fall off horses, you couldn't have the actors do that. Uh, right. You know, often Caucasian people playing natives, as we know, painted down. Uh, right. And then, uh, you know, just people getting shot off of buildings and falling off of them. Those are the very first stunt performers. They were stunt men. In fact, if there was a woman falling off of a building or a horse, it was often a man dressed in women's clothing. So if, if you're talking about cowboys, you're talking about sort of the, the, the uh, you know, archetype of, of cishet straight male. Uh, and, and, and so it's probably not surprising that and still sort of retains a lot of that sort of chauvinism. And unfortunately, what goes with that is misogyny, the problem with chauvinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and along with misogyny, as we know, much of homophobia is rooted in misogyny. So there's also homophobia. As I spent my time in stunts, the two things I noticed one was, you know, you would have multiple, you would have crowd scenes, and let's say, oh, you are correct in saying this, and let's, let's have a sidewalk scene where a car goes out of control and runs up in the sidewalk. There's 20 people that dive out of the way. Historically, in the last 30 years I've been working in stunts, like, what color are those people? Well, they seem to almost always be white, mostly male. They seem to think of putting in, you know, a female or two. And this is not, I don't think it's active racism, but I would call this default whiteness. Right. Because the stunt coordinators historically have always been cishet, middle-aged white men. So that's how the casting works. So for me, in order for me to work, and this was the first, uh, you know, 20 plus years of my career, I'd be sitting around waiting for a movie that would come or a TV show that would have basically a Chinatown scene or, or something that needed like triad gangsters or Yakuza gangsters. Cause that's when I would play. Denzel Washington famously said that he was, would never play, you know, uh, a role that denigrated 
the African-American male. He gets to say that because he's Denzel Washington. But I don't get to say that. I needed to to eat. And so I played gangsters and that sort of thing like all the time. You know, my mom once said to me, you know, uh, uh, years ago when she was still alive, she's like, oh, you're you're such a good boy. I mean, I wasn't, but uh, you're such a good boy. (laughs) Why do they always make play these? these these bad guys these thugs and i i answered her i said well because mom that's how white people see us so that was part of it and then the other thing of course was being on set and and hearing you know this sort of toxic masculinity and chauvinistic remarks about women in general but female performers and so on not taking them seriously not giving them the credit that they deserve you know for being there uh, and then, of course, what goes with that, you know, homophobic remarks, jokes, and so on, not directed to anybody in the group because they assumed nobody was queer in the group. There was a right. default straightness, which I had to play under. I already wasn't working enough being a person of color in stunts. You know, I'm, at that time, I thought, well, imagine if I actually came out. I, I basically wouldn't work at all, is, is what, you know, what many people think, uh, what they fear about coming out in any type of professional setting. So what if I can't work anymore? And, and have you seen that? I mean, have, I mean, and I totally believe that it exists, whether you've actually seen it or not, but have you actually seen that kind of discrimination when somebody came out or um, um, somebody was perceived to be gay um, or to be um, LGBTQ in, in some fashion? Well, here's the interesting thing. Uh, remember that I had said that there's almost zero representation uh, of queer people within stunts. There actually have, there are two or three female stunt coordinators in the country that did come out, that have come out. Um, I think they may or may not have come out as performers. You have less power as a performer, of course, because you're waiting to get hired. Um, certainly they came out as coordinators by that point. Uh, but here's the thing. It's a kind of a double standard, if you think of it, uh, from a chauvinistic point of view. If a woman identifies herself as a lesbian, as queer, then there can be that uh, assumption, a false one, of course, uh, there can be an assumption that, oh, well, that means she's just one of the guys. Uh, that means she's right. just going to be tougher than most of the girls. That's the assumption. Unfortunately, you know, uh, the inverse of that is not true. If, if a male performer self-identified as gay or queer of some kind, then there is that other assumption which would be like, oh, is, is he going to cry if he breaks a nail? The assumption that he isn't going to be tough enough to be a stunt man, quote-unquote. And that's the problem. So because of that, I don't know any, well, up until I think last year, I don't know any male stunt performers that have come out as queer or gay. So, and that's taken me to the point that that is the reason why, like a couple of years, just about four years ago, I was thinking, you know, I wish, I wish things could change. And then I suddenly realized, well, wait a minute, I'm a, I'm a stunt coordinator now. I made it all the way up here as a person of color. People don't know that I'm queer, but maybe they should know because I hoped 
that coming out would at least let people see, you know, people who are in the stunt uh, community, whether they are ready to come out or not, that there are other people like them, that right. it would validate yeah. them and that they feel like they belong. Yeah. So um, a few years ago when she won the Academy Award, Frances McDormand uh, got up and obviously she was speaking about the, the woman community um, primarily, but um, I think it applied, she spoke directly to diversity um, and um, asked everyone in the behind the scenes in the audience at the Academy Awards that they do an inclusionary clause in contracts that they were required to set up the crews, et cetera, et cetera, um, with diversity, you know, throughout. Um, do you think that concept will catch on, that um, it would get instituted, or is that something that will get squashed um, by the, the hierarchy in, in all of Hollywood? I, I don't know that it would get squashed. I certainly hope that it would be adopted. I mean, I do know that here... Um, there is a uh, there's a, a program basically in place that is trying to raise the number of female directors uh, to 50%. I don't know what the if there's a deadline to that, but that's what they're trying to do. So there's, it's already female representation that they're looking for. Uh, to my knowledge, there isn't a one for LGBTQ people, but it does seem to be happening even on its own. And then you know, for my part after coming out and after self-identifying and after at least being there for people to see it, anyone to come to talk to if they wanted to, if they wanted to confide in me or, or, or come out to me at least, uh, I am also actively recruiting people you know, into stunts. I will be actively recruiting people in the stunts uh, that are from these groups because we, we just need more of it. We need way more BIPOC people, we need LGBTQ people, we need everybody. And how, how are you doing that outreach? Because it's, it is such a specialized thing that you do. I mean, it isn't something that um, uh, anybody can just walk up and, and either have the skill for or be even properly trained for, and it's kind of dangerous if they don't. Um, so how that seems like it would make your challenge even harder when you're targeting specific people, especially groups who at the outset might be threatened by even going in that direction. Yeah, there's definitely challenges to it. Uh, there can be barriers for a lot of BIPOC people for trying to do something like getting into stunts or, or you know, because there's money involved in, in doing all the training, depending on what you're specializing in. If you're doing martial arts, you would have to spend years training and doing that. If you, if you, well, if you wanted to do cars, I mean, that's incredibly expensive, actually, just, just to try to get enough training to be able to do that or specialize in that. Mm -hmm. But what I am doing is I'm currently speaking to uh, a diversity committee within uh, our union. They have been trying to serve uh, the BIPOC people uh, in within the union. And then we are actually in talks about putting me in contact with those people, basically actors, and finding out if anybody has skill sets or interests in getting into stunts. So firstly, we are trying to do it within the union. I'm also interested in meeting anybody, and I, I, I let it be known, and I will be looking 
you know, outside of the union as well. But as a union member myself, we, we do have to, of course, favor people who are already in the union. Right. So, um, which is fantastic that you are doing what you're doing because it's, it's something that it is very hard on the outside to try to affect. But how can, how can pedestrian people like me who watch a movie and don't even know what the diversity makeup of the stunt people are? I mean, we're just sitting there so awed and impressed by everything that's going on. We haven't even stopped to examine that. Um, how do we support that? Or how do we you know, even know that we're witnessing a lack of diversity? Hmm. Well, you know, how to support it is different is uh, sort of uh, difficult because, of course, the the industry itself is insular in its entirety, and certainly stunts is, is even more insular than that. So I don't know how one would affect it from the outside. Um, I would just say that as uh, you know, people in the world in general, if we are all asking for better representation, if we are all asking for, you know, the social justice of representation, then we are going to see more BIPOC and LGBTQ people included and represented in our media, in our film, you know, so that we can all see ourselves uh, there as well. If that is happening, then, and it is happening, it's already being reflected, you know, in, uh, uh, in Hollywood, and in, in movies and TV, that will also affect the demand for those things within stunts. The, the, the thing within stunts is to break down what's left of the barriers between itself and the rest of Hollywood because the power structure and, uh, you know, the, the, the status quo of this sort of cis male, you know, cis Caucasian male, hetero male, dominated world has to open its doors. It has, you know, the the old guard will have to either change or they'll have to age out and leave in order for these changes to really take place. But I'm here. Right. And I think that that shows that it's possible. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and, and, go ahead, Brody. Craig, um, I have some young people who work in streaming services uh, they work on obviously they're independent productions, but they're you know selling shows to Netflix or Amazon Prime, uh, some of these other streaming services, and these are micro productions, independent productions. Um, so here's my question: Is it going to be easier? And, and I know that at Home in Canada we have two basic centers of filmmaking: Vancouver, uh, Richmond area, British Columbia, and of course at home in my hometown of Toronto, but Looking at this, okay, and what you just said, it seemed like it was a little bit more directed at the studio system, which we know, quite frankly, has some deep flaws and some other issues. Would you see it as more available opportunities for these smaller scale productions, for these type of, you know, for folks that would be queer BIPOC, that would be interested in doing stunt uh, and, and stunt coordinating in these smaller you know, productions for streaming and everything else since there's been this explosion of that as opposed to the traditional format 
you know, of how the Hollywood studios are doing their shows. I, that's just a question. Well, I didn't know, realize you were uh, based in Toronto just like me, but uh, that's awesome. We're, we're, uh, hey, neighbor. <laughs> um, well, um, I haven't lived there for a number of years, so it's like, hey, you up on the other side of the border. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, getting into – so when you say independent, that it's, that's sort of uh, – I don't know if you mean non-union or union. If it's non-union – even independent, I, I do find I was just speaking to a, a, a young director, well, actor turned director. They're, they're doing a they're, they're doing a co-op project. They wanted me to help them out, you know. And she said, "Well, I, I believe in you know authentic representation." She's she's Asian, Asian Canadian. Mm-hmm. She goes, "So I wanted an all Asian uh, crew and cast, and that's why she was looking at me." So I'm like, "Well, that's." pretty lovely it's like i've never even heard of these things happening before so these things are happening uh you know apparently on now uh, as we speak so that's already very encouraging it's definitely easier to get in on smaller projects uh and there are non-union shows they do do stunts you don't really want to do a lot of stunts in non-union projects because of course they can't afford to pay you but the risk could be the same. So you have to be cognizant of how much risk you want to expose yourself to uh, without proper uh, compensation or remuneration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a huge point. Huge point. Um, take, how yeah. do you recruit? I mean, you obviously are in a position, as you said, where you, you get to be the, the person helping to, up the diversity level, um, how do you outreach to um, young uh, BIPOC, LGBTQIA plus people? Um, and if people are listening now, kids, um, young people who, you know, we're putting ideas in their heads right this minute, how do they get involved? How do they start out to get both um, unionized and disciplined and um, hone their talents for the industry? Well, I think no matter who you are, I mean, I do get this question a lot. I, people often ask me if they find out that I work within stunts, both you know, either as a performer or otherwise, and certainly now as a coordinator. Like, well, how do you get in? Uh, so I guess it, it sounds enticing. Um, sure. I always say, hey, there's lots of other ways to make a good living, but sure, if that's what you want to do, <laughs> I can't tell you not to. Um, really, it's the same. It's, then it's the same for everybody. Look, the demand is coming. Right, the demand for BIPOC people, the demand for LGBTQ people, is going to come. So, for any young people that are listening and that, that have an interest, it doesn't matter how you, you know, how you orientate, how you, how you identify. You just would need to start training. What if you're already training and it's something you do, you should get really good at it, but seriously good at it. After that, um, generally need to be of age, unless of course. Uh, you know, you're related to people who are in stunts because there are exemptions made for underage stunt people. Generally speaking, you do need to be of age to do stunts, right? Because you need to be able to sign off on yourself. Uh, right. Once you have the skill set, or if you believe you have the skill set, you should be making a demo tape for yourself. You should be trying to find out who your local coordinators are, and you should be getting, creating what we, you know, basically we call a package, a CV, so that should be 
all your training, uh, any experience that you do have, even if it's non-union or if it is union, uh, along with along with your demo, and you should be sending that to your uh, to your stunt coordinators or, or to productions attention to the stunt coordinator to get yourself noticed. Uh, that's the standard way of getting in, basically. Excellent. Well, that, that, I think that was a really great outline that you just laid out. Um, I think we are down to our last three minutes. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for what you do. I want to thank you for what you've accomplished. And, and having accomplished that, that you're stepping out visually um, as a person of color, as a person of the queer community, and um, um, kind of a trailblazer for people to follow. Um, in our last three minutes, what have we not asked you that we should have asked? I can't think of anything really. Like we really did cover anything that I I think that we would have talked about. Okay, good. But I expected. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty glad, good. I'm glad, I'm glad, glad to. <laughs> Excellent. Well, very good. Um, so, uh, what are you working on right now? What is your current project? Uh, I have finished two seasons of The Boys, uh, and now I and then uh, three seasons of What We Do in the Shadows. And now I'm on uh, Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. Excellent. So The Lost Symbol is on NBC. Uh, what we do in the shadows is on FX, and The Boys is on Amazon. So I want our listeners to uh, check out uh, Tig's work on all three. Um, we we want to both lend support plus admire the, the artistry. Um, Plus, if you do know people who are interested in the industry, I think to lay out a, a really great outline of how those folks can get involved. Um, and I think it is encouraging that the people being seen on camera will help drive um, these positions and we'll see a lot more diversity. Uh, it's really, really an exciting thing um, to have happen. Tig, thank, again, thank you for for joining us today. Um, it's been enlightening and intriguing and really, really wonderful. And um, like I said, major kudos to the art form that you are part of and, and your talent there. Um, I also want to thank Brody for your participation today and your work as the editor of the LA Blade. Please check out Brody's publication. It is groundbreaking and uh, they are working on that story we talked about before about um, the situation in LA and the spa and the pretty much potential fraud that has been perpetrated there. Um, and they're going to be continuing looking at that. We may even talk about it more on this show. And speaking of this show, we will be back again next week with a really intriguing, fascinating, wonderful episode. No clue what it will be on, but I can guarantee you that it will be all of those adjectives and we will look forward to bringing it to you then. So for the team here at Rated LGBT Radio, thank you. Tell your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we love you very, very much and are very, very grateful for you. And we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 